Hey, miserable bitches, we are back with another episode of Misery Manor. My name is Cody. <laughs> oh my god, my name's Emily. And before we get started, make sure you leave your manners at the door. Episode 42! 4-2-4-2! That was really cute. The choreography that went with that. I wish y'all could see the choreography that went with that because it was real good. It had a, a titty shake and a booty twerk and a neck roll. It did have a neck roll. <laughs> Cody also, used to want to do these on YouTube, which I, I know. swiftly One, one day we are going to upload like visuals of us recording these and put them on YouTube because the way I read these and the hand gestures and the neck twist and all that, it's actually pretty funny. But for now, you're just going to get to listen to our voices, which after listening back to these episodes, I sound like a country little thing. Yeah, you, you do. I sure do. And I'm proud of it, honey. All right. So before we get started in this story, we're going to do something fun. A lot of y'all, and we appreciate this so much. You have been tagging us on your Instagram stories of you listening to it, of you in the car with it. Love that. Keep it coming. But we're now going to reward you for doing that. So if we see this next, we'll do the next two weeks. If you post on your story that you're listening to us or giving us a shout out, just remember to tag at Misery Manor Podcast or we won't see it. Um, Your name is going to go to a hat. And then on our next episode, we're going to put the names in the hat and draw And if you win, we'll send you a DM. We'll announce it on the podcast and you can go to our merch store and you can pick out whatever you want and we'll send it to you. You said we were going to do it for the next two weeks. Oh, sorry. So it'll be not next episode, but the episode after that in two weeks. Um, Or we can just do it a week. No, we're doing it two weeks to give people time. So your name will go in a hat. We'll draw it. And then you can go to our website, miserymanorpodcast.com and pick out whatever you like. Sweater. T-shirt, coffee mug, journal, tumbler, tumbler, <laughs> tumbler, decal, whatever you want, honey. So thank you so much, and we really do appreciate it. Now, I also because we have promises from the very beginning to give Patreon shoutouts, and now we're gonna do it. So in the last week, we've had quite a few Patreons join. So here's the shoutouts to the Patreon queens. We have Kimberly. We have Nicole, we have Aurora, is that how you say it? Aurora, Mari, Kevin, Elizabeth, Jojo, Siwa, no, (laughs) (laughs) Jules, and Raven. Yay! So thank you so much for being a Patreon. Emily sent out your pens uh, this week. Yeah, Monday. And and we've even gotten DMs that some people have already received their their enamel pens. So. Right. And it's not too late to not be a Patreon. If you want to be a Patreon, it's in the show notes below. Or you can go to our Instagram at Misery Manor Podcast. And if you click the link in our bio, it'll take you to our Patreon too. So you'll get exclusive episodes. You'll get discount on our merch. And you'll get fun stuff in the mail from me and Emily. 
We just recorded a podcast that we're going to, or an episode that we're going to upload uh, tomorrow to the Patreons, and it's three um, alien encounters, like, from mm. people that said they were abducted, were abducted by aliens and, like, what they went through. It's fucking cool. I love just it. Just a bunch of lies. Emily hated it. I loved it. So, um, thank you so much. So, continue to rate, review, subscribe. We love that shit. If you have something bad to say, keep it pushing. Keep it moving. <laughs> we do appreciate the five stars, though. Also, I do, before we get started, I do want to give a shout out to uh, this podcast that I've came across, and I love it so much. Emily loves it as well. Um, so, it's one of my... I, I've never met her in person, but we talk on Instagram. Her name is Madam Pamita, and she has this podcast called Magic and the Law of Attraction. So it's the podcast that answers your questions about spells, rituals, spirituality, to help you understand and harness the power of positive thought, you need this, and make your life the very best that it can be. I've been really positive lately. <laughs> you have. We're teaching um, Emily how to manifest positive, positive things. Who is we? Me and the Lord above. <laughs> <laughs> so she's a writer, uh, Madame Pamita. She's a writer. She's a tarot card reader. She's a root worker. Uh, she brings you her own personal blend of magic, Wicca, hoodoo, and new thought spiritualism. And she'll teach you like tricks and tips and affirmations to manifest love, luck, money, prosperity, and success. So head on over there. That's the magic and law the Magic and the Law of Attraction podcast. You won't regret it. And her voice is very, very soothing. It can put you to sleep. It can just make you feel all warm and fuzzy. So basically the opposite of mine. <laughs> and she has a book that she actually yes. signed for Cody. And it's so beautiful. Like just the cover, it, cover yes. of it is so pretty. It's um, it's the story and the history of Baba Yaga. Mm -hmm. um, and she also has books on like, if you're interested in like tarot card readings, she has a book that... Uh, goes through each of the cards and like what it means and like what when you're given a reading how to interpret it and then she also has a book over candle spells too which is pretty cool like if you want like success or you want money or you want luck or love and stuff like that she'll teach you how to do candle what spells what about so. like hexing people I don't she doesn't do the bad stuff <laughs> oh but as she can do stuff to like get rid of like an evil like presence that may be surrounding you so go check it out you won't regret it but now let's get into the reason why you were here on our podcast. So I have a really, really, really fun story for you. Well, I don't know about fun, but it's very like eerie. It's like a mixture. It is a murder mystery. So it has murder, but it also has a very spooky vibe to it as well. So I'm going to be going through the mysterious and unsolved murder in hotel room 1046. But before we get started, let me tell you about a little story about me and Emily in a hotel room. Okay. So we traveled to Knoxville, Tennessee, and I was already anxiety stricken. Oh, <laughs> the whole airport, I was shaking in my well, boots. You were, but the day before, I got T-boned, and yes. my car was almost totaled. Yeah, she got T-boned, and it was not good. But we get into our hotel room, and it is literally so scorching hot. I thought I was having an anxiety attack. I took about 10 baths and some ice cold water, and I just thought that my anxiety was through the roof. So finally, Emily was like, do you smell something burning? Remember, you were like, what is that burning smell? And I was like, I think it's me. Like, I think I'm on fire. We'll come to find the fuck out. Our freaking air had been, well, the air 
condition had been like burnt like it was overheated so it was, it was overheated. basically shorting out and so we were sitting in this room it was so hot it's not a murder mystery by any means but it just was the last time we were and then we had to stay another night because a tornado came so well okay so then that happened so then we had to change rooms right and it was freezing and then it was freezing in there and yeah. so we ate pizza in bed and watched scream so and then we ordered cheesecake one night at like midnight midnight Sure did. And more to come on that story later. But, okay, so let's get back to this story, okay? So... Wait, what's going to happen later with the cheesecake? Not the cheesecake, the hotel experience, like, while we were there. Oh. So, the story that I'm about to unfold is one of the most insane, twisted, and confusing unsolved cases of all time. Now, when I'm telling this story, I'm going to be saying a lot of names... So follow along, do the best you can to pay attention to this, because if it's one of those things where you're like in and out of it, it might not make sense to you because there's a lot of moving parts in here. Okay. There's going to be a quiz, but I'm going to do the best I can to tell the story the best that I can. So this is going to be about the murder in room hotel room 1046. So a young man checked into this hotel and he never checked back out. So on Wednesday, January 2nd, 1935, around 1.20 p.m., a man calling himself Roland T. Owen checked into the Hotel President in Kansas City, Missouri, which sits in their Power and Light District, if you're from there. The room he was assigned to was room 1046 on the 10th floor. Witnesses say he was aged anywhere from 20 to 25 with brown hair, and a large scar on his scalp visible above his ear. So I'm going to post a photo. It's a huge scar. So like that's one good thing to be able to determine the body mm -hmm. with that scar. It was huge. Almost like a like a not a birth defect, but just like an area where there was no hair. Is it like a puffy one? No, it was just like an area where there was like a, almost like a big bald spot. Um, and he also had a cauliflower ear, which not an edible ear. A cauliflower ear is one that has become thickened and deformed as a result of repeated blows, like punches. So typically you will see boxers or wrestlers have cauliflower ears. Or teenage girls that get their cartilage pierced. Right. So he was nicely dressed in a black coat and presented himself very mature and successful. So nothing out of the ordinary. The hotel staff was not like... Okay, something's up with this dude. You know, he was just a typically normal guy coming in. So the bellboy, Randolph Probst, helped Owens to his room, where he reported that Owens seemed to have only packed a brush, a comb, a toothbrush, and toothpaste. No luggage and no clothing whatsoever. That's a lot of bristles. <laughs> While he thought that was very odd and peculiar... Um, Owen also insisted to the bellboy that he had to have a room that faces the courtyard rather than the street. Now, I don't think that's very weird because well, if you had a chance to have a room facing the courtyard, I mean... Oh. Or maybe someone's after him. Right. And he wants to keep an eye out. Wait, did you say he packed an extra pair of undies? No. Oh. I did not. Only a brush, a comb, a toothbrush, and a toothpaste. So at least he wanted to be snazzy jazzy. Oh, <laughs> so while they were on the elevator heading up to the room... Owens also told Randolph that he had just stayed the night at the Muhlebeck Hotel, which was like down the road, mm -hmm. but he was very frustrated about his experience there because it was so expensive. So this made him switch to the hotel president, which I looked it up and guess how much it was a night at this hotel? $5 back in the day, 1935. Okay. <laughs> so I guess he wanted it for $2. 
So upon entering room 1046, Owens put up his very few belongings in the cupboard above the bathroom sink. Owens then left the room right when Randolph was leaving. So he thought that was really weird because like, he just walked out right behind him. He just him. walked out, and he was like, oh, okay. So Randolph returned to the front desk to wait for other guests, and Owens exited the building. A few hours later, now get all, all your laughs now, because her name is Mary Soap Dick. <laughs> <laughs> one of the hotel maids, so she was Mary Soap Dick was one of the hotel maids. She started her afternoon shift. When she entered Owens' room, she said she was immediately thrown off by his strange and peculiar behavior. So at 4 p.m. when she came in, wait, yeah, he was already he was already back from when yeah. he exited. He was gone for most of the day, right? Yeah. So Mary took a mental note of the strange behaviors of Owens. She said that Owens kept the shades tightly drawn and the lights off with an exception of one dim light in the corner. Other staff members who entered the room also mentioned this detail about him. Why are so many people going in his room? Right. So as she was cleaning, he asked her not to turn on any lights and just sat in the dark being very, very quiet and just watching her. That's very I'd have been like, can I help you? Well, I'm like, why is she in there cleaning? He hasn't even been in there all day. Yeah. Right. So Mary Soapdick also mentioned that every time she entered room 1046 to clean, he always was sitting in the same corner or laying on the bed in complete darkness. Sounds miserable. He's a vampire. While she was cleaning, Owen then stood up out of nowhere, brushed his hair, put on a coat, and said, Do not lock the door behind you. I'm expecting a friend to come over. And he got up and left the room. So according to the maid's statement to the police, she felt that Owen was, quote, either worried about something or very afraid, and said, quote, he always wanted to keep in the dark. I would have said, I ain't cleaning this hot mess unless you let me turn on a light. Maybe he was embarrassed by his cauliflower ears. No, because he was very attractive. I'll post pictures. Like, he's a very attractive man. So, later that same day, Mary returned with new towels, but this time when she entered the room, she found Owens laying on the bed, completely dressed in the pitch dark with the door unlocked. She also saw saw a note on the nightstand that was only made visible from the light entering from the hallway. The note read, quote, Don... I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. So now we're like, who the fuck is Don? On the next day, January 3rd, Mary came back to clean the room at 1030 a.m. She noticed that the door had been locked from the outside and assumed that Owen locked it as he was leaving the room. So apparently, back in the day, you could lock the doors to hotel rooms from the outside. Now, I did do some research to try to figure out what this doorknob looked like, and I could not find it. It's with a key. Like, meaning, like, she was like, okay, he turned the key right. and then just, like, left. So she wasn't expecting him right. to be in oh, there. Duh. Oh, oh, my, my God. We just sat at dinner for 45 minutes trying, trying to, to figure, figure this out. Okay, you're right. You are so right. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> the, the wine was getting to my head from yesterday. Okay. So... So again, Mary thought that Owen locked it himself as he left. However, when she entered the room at 1046, or room 1046, Owen was sitting inside the the room in the exact same position that he was the afternoon before. So someone took his key and locked him in there. Right. So again, the lights were off, which meant someone else had to have locked the door from outside the room as they left. While Mary Soapdick was in the, in, the, in the same room cleaning, the phone rang. 
So still in the darkness, Owen gets up from the bed, answers the phone and says, no, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. That's rude. So Mary said the conversation continued and he kept repeating the quote, no, I am not hungry. After the phone conversation ended, Owens began to question Mary about her job. He asked her if she was responsible for cleaning the entire floor, if the hotel was for residents. Um, Mary had some small talk with him, but she finished up cleaning and quickly left the room. Like, she's starting to get kind of weirded out at this point. Because he's in there. Right, in the dark. But their conversation was kind of like ours was today. You kept telling me you weren't hungry. And I was like, but I am. (laughs) So, Soap Dick came back around 4 p.m. to deliver the fresh towels. As she was approaching the door, she heard two male voices loud from inside the room. So before entering, she decided to knock to let them know that she was coming in out of courtesy. So when she knocked, she heard a rough voice, like a very rough, dark, uh, like low-pitched voice. So very different from Owen's, calling back saying, who is it? Okay. So Mary said, it's Mary, your housekeeper. I have fresh towels for you. May I come in? However, the same voice, the rough voice said, we don't need any. Mary thought this was super strange because there were no towels left in the room because she had taken them all when she entered earlier and she was coming back to deliver the fresh, clean towels. So she didn't put up an argument. She just left at their request. So during the night, a woman staying in room 1048, so this is two rooms down, reported hearing loud voices, both male and female, cursing very loudly on the same floor. And she thought it could have been from 1046. But it was then later reported that there was a huge party going on that night in mm. room 1055, which was on the same hallway, just a little bit like, further down. Well, I mean, it could have even been like across the hall. Right. Or even outside. You know, sometimes you can hear things outside. So, um... So the elevator operator, Charles Blocker, who started his shift at midnight, he stated that he was very busy letting guests up to this party till about 1.30 a.m., but after that, the hotel seemed to quiet down a lot. So here's where things start to get very strange. Oh, that was... Including that voice. The face. So the next morning... January 4th at 7 a.m., the hotel phone operator noticed that Owen's hotel room phone had been off the hook for quite some time without being in use. So she had actually planned on giving him a morning wake-up call, but was unable to do so because obviously the phone was off the hook. These hotel employees are very involved in their guests' lives. I know. If you gave me a 7 a.m. wake-up call... Like, did he ask for that? And then they just, like, keep coming with the... Like... I am in here. Leave me alone. Right. They want to make sure you got fresh towels and you're awake, honey. So she sent the bellboy, Randolph, up to 1046. Now, this is the same bellboy that's always been involved. Oh, okay. So despite the locked door having a do not disturb sign, Randolph knocked a few times and then he heard a low voice say, come in. And he said, he knocked and he was like, you know, it's locked. Like, it's locked. And so the voice came back and said, turn on the lights. Well, bitch, he can't even get in. Right. So Randolph said, can you please let me in? Like, the door is locked. And he kept knocking. And he waited and he waited, but nobody came to the door. So he's like, screw it. So after knocking and knocking, Randolph said, quote, um, he yelled from the hallway, hey, put the phone back on the hook. Assuming that Owen was just, like, drunk and just, like, trying to, like, deal with whatever. Um, So he was like, I'll just come back in an hour or so. 
and check back on him. Mm -hmm. So around 8.30 a.m., about an hour and a half later, the phone was still off the hook. So another bellboy, Harold Pike, went up to room 1046 and noticed that the door was still locked and the do not disturb sign was still in place. Okay. That did not phase him, though. He just let himself in the room and was like, look, the phone is off the hook, which I don't know why they care so much. I know. Okay, so he's like a master he, key? He uh, used the, uh, what they call a pass key. Oh, okay. So once he opened the door using only the light from the hall, the bellboy Harold observed that Owen was in bed, naked, and seemingly drunk by his behavior. So he's like, you know, like what, gr- uh, grunting, groggy. groggy, like all that kind of stuff. So he also noticed that the bedding, which this is weird, was darkened around Owen's. <gasps> like he had tinkled. Right. So the phone stand was completely kicked over. So he fixed it, put the phone back on the receiver, and was like, hey, is everything okay? Um, we've been trying to get a hold of you. We've been knocking on the door. But he got no response. Just like, uh, like... Do you think he tickled his toes before he left? I think he tickled his fancy Oh. Ooh. So at approximately 10.30 to 10.45, the phone, once again, was off the receiver. What the hell? I think he's having, like, spastic attacks and just, like, kicking it off the shit. Maybe he's just messing so with them. So they sent the original bellboy, Randolph, to solve the issue again. So he noted that the door was still locked and the do not disturb sign was still up. This time, he came with the key, though. So Harold was like, dude, just take the key. You can get in. Fix it. So when he opened the door, this is when they stumbled across a horrific scene. I'm scared. So here's his statement to the police. He said, quote, When I entered the room, this man was within, within two feet of the door on his knees and elbows, holding his bashed head in his hands. I noticed blood on his head, so I turned on the light and I looked around and I saw blood on the walls, on the bed, and everywhere in the bathroom. This frightened me, and I immediately left the room and went downstairs. That's rude. What would you start doing? That's what I don't understand. He's the one that's hurt. He's not going to hurt you. He needs help. Right. So Randolph was scared, and he just ran down to the lobby to get his manager. I was like, look, can you please come with me? Something horrible has happened in 1046. So when the two returned, they tried to enter the room, but they were unable to open it because Owens had collapsed about six inches from the door. So amazingly, Owen was still alive. In fact, Owen was even able to get up off the floor to let Randolph and the manager in. And he just walked over to the bathroom and set up the edge of the bathtub while they called for police. I can picture it. Me too. Like he's like leaned up against it. Like just bloody and just like... So... Owen was discovered with extensive injuries. He had been tied up with a cord around his neck, wrist, and ankles. It appeared that he had been tortured. Blood had even gotten on the wall and the ceiling above the bed. He had been hit repeatedly on the head and his skull was fractured. He had also been stabbed in the chest several times. Some of the stabs were so severe and one of them punctured his lung. (gasps) There was bruising all around him, which led people to believe that he was even strangled around his neck. Remarkably, Owen was still alive, though. One of the detectives to arrive on the scene asked Owen, who else came into this room with you? Who was here? And Owen responded, quote, nobody. Okay. Although he was hardly capable of talking and not fully conscious. 
So when the investigators asked Owen, like, okay, so what happened? Like, who could have caused this? Did someone come in here and do this? What happened? He explained, I just fell against the bathtub and hit my head. So he failed to mention how the bounding, the stabbing. Binding. The strangulation. You're about to get it. Attempts occurred. The door, uh, the doctor on the scene asked Owens, hey, did you attempt to commit suicide? And Owen said, no. That's valid. So. How would you tie? That's the only part. They were like, it looks like he could have. But the. But like. Well, I guess you would have. I mean, I don't know when they had like people that analyze like blood and cast off and all that. But can you. I'm sure even then. If something was flung up like that and there's blood up there doing that to yourself. Yeah, typically it doesn't go down that way. So, after this brief exchange, though, Owen fainted and collapsed. He was completely unconscious at this point and immediately taken to a nearby hospital. So, detectives wasted no time, and they started searching room 1046. They were more concerned about what they did not find as opposed to what they found. So, consistent to what Randolph had observed, uh, the bellboy, there were no clothes in the closets or the drawers. It looked like nobody had lived there. Or weapons stayed there. No weapons. The only evidence of anything other than what Owens had been wearing was like a necktie that he had. Um, and they knew that it was made from a New Jersey company. Also missing from the room, though, was the soap, the shampoo and the towels provided by the hotel provided by the hotel staff to every room. So all that was missing. You know what that reminds me of? What? Remember that thing that happened at work I told you about? No. Oh. And neither would they. Uh, (laughs) So there there were no knives, which led to the dismissal of suicide as a cause of Owen's death, since the stab wounds in his chest could not be accounted for. The cords tying him up also suggested that other people were involved because they were like, there's no way this guy could have tied himself up. So the room came with like two glasses and they were found in the sink completely shattered. And one of them was on the shelf um, untouched. Detectives did find some other items that could be evidence. They found a hairpin, a safety uh, safety pin, unsmoked cigarettes, and a full bottle of diluted sulfuric acid. Okay. Do you know what sulfuric acid could be used for? It can be used for a number of things. It can be used for cleaning solution. It can be used to make dyes, detergent, bleach. Okay. Um, I don't know. So... Thanks for it sharing. It makes a really good, like, garlic butter. Ew! Uh, you are lying at that ass. Okay, so also four fingerprints were also found on the phone stand from a, potentially from a, a female because they were smaller. Obviously, at this time, they didn't have, um, you couldn't test fingerprints at this time. Um, but they thought it could have been from a female because they were smaller. Actually, no, they can test. They can test fingerprints at this time. Well, they I'm just sorry. didn't have, like, a database. Right, exactly. Probably. So, um, going back to Owen at the hospital, doctors worked to save Owens for hours and hours and hours, but it did not work. He died from his injuries just after midnight on January 5th. Damn. So, doctors performed an autopsy on Owens and determined that he had died from his wounds. Dr. Flanders had examined not just the body, but the blood stains in the room and figured that the attack must have happened right after Harold went in to check the room for the second time. 
Okay, after the phone was off the hook. For the second time, yeah. So remember when Randolph first went into the room and he heard the voice call back to him. So we know that Owens was alive then. Then when Harold went to put the phone back on the hook, Owen was asleep in the room, so he knew that he was alive then too. Then when Randolph went back in the room for the third time is when he found Owen's bludgeon. So many people believe that the murderer, this is eerie, was still in the dark room when Randolph entered the room, but fled when he saw the gruesome scene. Yeah, that totally makes sense that someone was, I'm sorry, I had to shift. When Owen initially checked into the hotel, he mentioned he was from Los Angeles. But Los Angeles authorities were unable to find any record of a Roland T. Owen, bringing into question whether that the victim's real, whether that was the victim's real name. It soon became apparent that Roland T. Owen was most likely an alias. Maybe he was homeless. I mean, he only had three things. Yeah, but he was dressed really nice. So, a woman called the hotel president the night that night and asked what Roland T. Owen looked like. So upon seeing and hearing the description, she told the front desk staff that he did not live in Los Angeles, California, but instead lived in Clinton, which was 50 miles east of Kansas City, Missouri, which that would make sense. They're in Kansas City, Missouri. But she was not able to provide a name or a identity of the man. On January 6th, the Sunday newspaper reported that the man in 1046 had died under an assumed name, so then tips began coming in. Okay. Owen's body was placed for viewing at the Metal- Melody McGilly Funeral Home for the public to view. After viewing the body, Robert Lane, who was a city worker um, driving on 13th Street in the night of the 3rd, told officers that he saw a man dressed in only an undershirt, pants, and shoes run into his path and flag him down. When Lane stopped, the man apologized, saying that he had mistaken Lane's car for a taxi. The man asked Lane if he could take him somewhere close so that he might be able to get a taxi. Lane agreed and let the frantic man in. Lane told the man, dude, you look like you're in like bad shape. Are you okay? What's going on? So the man swore to Lane that he was gonna kill somebody tomorrow, presumably in retaliation for whatever had been done to him. In the rearview mirror, Lane saw a deep scratch on the man's arm. He also noticed that he was cupping his arm, possibly to catch blood from a more severe wound. At the nearby intersection of 12th Street and Troost Avenue, this is where taxi drivers often waited for people to, you know, be want to mm-hmm. be picked up. Lane stopped to let this man out. The man thanked him, got out, and flagged down a taxi. Now, after Owen's death, Lane went to view the body, he saw the same scratch on the arm, and he went to police, and he believed that Owen, this guy, was the man that he had picked up. After interviewing Lane, the police were not as certain as Lane uh, that the man that he had picked up was Owen, since none of the hotel staff had reported seeing him leave or return the night of January 3rd to the 4th. So the hotel staff told police, that can't be him. We did not see him leave the hotel on the days that Lane is saying that he picked him up. So police were able to establish one sighting of Owen outside the hotel, um, and he was seen with two women at several liquor places, is what they quote, liquor <laughs> places on 12th Street. So I'm assuming like a liquor store or a bar. Okay. So a strong lead came in but proved false when a bloody towel was found at the hotel, but it turned out to have been used to clean up room 1046 
after the crime scene and after police had left. So officers recalled that when Owens checked into the hotel, he told the bellboy uh, Randolph that he had stayed at the Mulebeck Hotel the night before, but checked out the following day due to their high rates. Remember that? Yeah. So the police were like, we need to head over to the Mulebeck Hotel and question the hotel staff there. So they were able to confirm that nobody by the name Roland T. Owen had checked in there. But staff recalled a man of Owen's appearance checking in under the name Eugene K. Scott, also giving Los Angeles as his address and requesting a room on the interior of the building, just like he did at the hotel president. But after investigating, the LAPD reported that there was no one by the name of Eugene K. Scott in their city. So they're like, is this another alias? That's just surprising to me that they can tell that. But also the towels. Remember, he didn't have towels. Right. Exactly. I was thinking that, too. So that Mary Soap Dick was like, uh-uh. I didn't, they didn't have towels. <laughs> so another lead came in when a man identified the body as his cousin. But then when the man's sister came to view the body, she confirmed that the cousin had, in fact, died five years earlier. So they were like, well, this is not, this person this just not died. Helpful. Right. So they were, they did say that, in fact, the resemblance of the two was very strong, but obviously it was not, it was not a match. So a guy by the name of Tony Bernardi, a wrestling promoter in Little Rock, Arkansas, viewed the body of the man and said that he was, his name was Cecil Werner and that he had approached him in the beginning of December 1934 about wrestling and some matches. So Bernardi had referred him to another promoter in Omaha, Nebraska, but that promoter did not recognize Owen, which makes sense because if you remember, he has the cauliflower ear, ear. It would make sense if he was like wanting to go see, um, like wanting to be a wrestle, like be involved in wrestling matches. Oh, yeah. But again, that lead was not accurate. So. As the story spread, more and more people began reaching out to Kansas City authorities to see if their missing loved ones could be Owen. However, no one came forward to claim the body. Mm. So next, police just went ahead and they started focusing on the mysterious Don that Owen referred to several times while at the hotel. So Don was also conceivably the man with the deep voice that the maids heard through the door. Nevertheless, the police's search returned with no results. Owen's upcoming burial was soon announced by the Journal Post on March 3rd to be in a potter's field, which a potter's field is just an area where, like, poor, um, I guess, underprivileged people that can't afford a funeral. Well, unmarked graves, too. Right, exactly. Well, that's where they'll bury the bodies. So, however, the Melody McGilley Funeral Home received a call from an anonymous individual who said that they would send the money necessary to provide Owen with a proper funeral. That's nice. Sure enough, on March 23rd, money bundled in a newspaper was delivered to the funeral home from an anonymous sender. March 12th? March 23rd. Okay, well, that took a while. Funeral flowers were anonymously arranged with the Rock Flower Company along with a card that said, quote, Love forever, Louise, and placed on Owen's casket. But they never were able to find out who Louise was because they were like, oh, maybe she, you know, recognized the body but didn't say anything nope it just said for love forever louise and it could have just been someone that had like felt bad about the situation so skipping forward about a year and a half later in 1936 a lady came forward after reviewing a piece in a newspaper 
So upon looking at the newspaper, this lady by the name of Ruby Ogletree said, oh my God, that's my son. Stop. So Ruby would correctly identify Owen as her son who left Birmingham in 1934 when he was only 17 years old and was hitchhiking to California. She noted that the scar in this photo, the one on his head, in the newspaper was one that her son exactly had. She said that Owens is not his name. So Roland T. Owens is not his name. And she said his name was actually Artemis Ogletree and he was only 17 years old, which that sounds like a character in Harry Potter. It is a lot <laughs> Artemis to Ogletree. So Ruby Ogletree, his mother, had actually received three letters from, quote, her son in the spring of 1935, a year after he left for California. However, these letters were delivered after Owen's death, and they were typed, which is weird. So according to a sensational newspaper about the murder of the case, this was suspicious because Artemis had no idea how to type. Or access to one. It's not like they could easily get access to one. This article also reported that the letter's tone was, quote, slangy and unfamiliar. And Ruby Ogletree was like, this does not sound like my son at all. This is not my son. There's no way. In August of 1945, Ruby got a mysterious phone call from someone claiming to be from Memphis, Tennessee, and told her that her son Artemis was in Cairo, Egypt. What? (laughs) So records kept by shipping companies found no records that Artemis Ogletree had gone to Egypt and no other suspects had ever been identified. So that just went mom. After some time, it was revealed that Artemis Ogletree had also stayed at the St. Regis in Kansas City with another man who a lot of people think was Don. And a lot of people also think that Don had mafia ties because uh, back in the day, I don't know if they still do this, but if you were like a master or a leader in the mafia, you were just referred to as Don just to not give out your personal name. Yeah, just like a prefix. Yep. So in the early 2000s, Dr. John Horner, the author of an exhaustive account on the murder case published by the Kansas City Public Library, received an out-of-state call pertaining to Artemis Ogletree. The caller claimed to find a box containing newspaper articles about the Ogletree murder in a deceased elderly person's belongings. According to the caller, there was something else in the box that would give away the murder, something that had apparently been referenced in the newspaper articles as well. But unfortunately, the caller did not say what the item was or who the person was, so because of this, and they just hung up. So after this, they would have no idea how to get a hold of this person again. So again, it's annoying because all these people are calling in with like tips and then they're hanging up and nothing comes from it. Like, why would you do that? So, especially like they probably were having to pay to use like a pay. Back in the day, yeah. Maybe, I don't, or you have to like call an operator, don't you? Yeah, that's true. So with that, let's get into the theories that people have suspected went on okay Mm -hmm. so the first theory is rather simple so it is that the man referred to as don beat artemis ogletree to death in room 1046 and acted alone as mentioned before it came to light that shortly before his death ogletree had stayed in a different uh, kansas city hotel with another man who a lot of people think was don like a lover huh like a lover no they don't know who this uh like, obviously, they don't know this, this Don guy is, but also they don't know, like, why they're traveling together, right? 
I don't... Dawn was also conceivably the man with the deep voice that the maid heard through the uh, hotel door. But even if this theory is true, the police to this day are not had, have no idea who Dawn actually is. No one physically saw Dawn. They only heard his voice. So Mary Soapdig and the other maids and some of the staff only heard his voice. They've never visually saw Dawn. I mean, someone could hide. Yeah. I mean, my voice changes when I like... And congested, so maybe there was not another person in there, but he was talking to a Don. So the second theory is that the unknown Don. Oh, sorry. Oh, wait, no. So the mm-hmm. second theory is that the unknown Don didn't act alone. This theory relates to an observation by Charles Blocker, who was the elevator operator that night of the murder. So his observation also shed some light on who Don could be. So the night of the murder. Blocker said he saw a, quote, commercial woman going to the 10th floor. So a call girl. Right. The elevator operator estimated that the woman was 135 and about five and a half feet tall. She had dark... 135? Five pounds and five and a half feet tall. Oh. You said 135s, and I was like... I did, like... (laughs) She had dark hair, and she was wearing, quote, a black Hudson seal or imitation Hudson seal coat. Block, What's that? Probably just like a really fancy coat, like seal. I think like seal skin. I don't know. Seal? Seal, like S E A L. That's mean. So Blocker claimed this woman was looking for room 1026 to meet a man, but she was unable to find him and she looked very frazzled. So it's possible that this woman was looking for Artemis Ogletree, but had mistaken room 1046 for 1026. This commercial woman was also seen with a man from the ninth floor, a man that the elevator operator said was the same height and weight as the woman. Some speculate that this man could have been Don. So if you recall, there were fingerprints potentially from a female found on the phone stand and a Mm -hmm. woman saying next door in room 1048 that she heard loud female male voices cursing from in that area. So it wouldn't be unreasonable to suspect that this commercial woman and the man from the ninth floor entered room 1046 and were responsible for what happened to Artemis Ogletree. Okay. The third theory comes from many sensational articles published in the following years that suggested Ogletree was killed for being unfaithful to his fiancée. According to a sensational article published in the Newcastle Sun called the mystery murder in room 1046. The article states that a woman called the local newspaper to say, quote, you have a story in your paper that is wrong. Roland Owen will not be buried in a pauper's grave. Arrangements have been made for his funeral already. Okay. So So, family member. When asked to identify herself and what actually happened to the man still known as Owen at the time, she replied, quote, never mind. I know what I'm talking about. He just got into a jam before hanging up the phone. So again, someone hung up the damn phone. Either that or like, do you think that she did find out what happened and then she was threatened not to say right. anything? Like, oh shit, I better, like, yeah, that could be that could be it. So at the same time, a man called the funeral parlor where Owen was held and said, quote, don't bury Owen in the pauper's grave. I want you to bury him in Memorial Park Cemetery. Then he will be near my sister. I'll send the funds to cover the funeral expenses, end quote. The man apparently explained that Owen had abandoned a woman he was engaged to and that in room 1046, Owen and the woman had a, quote, little meeting. Mm -hmm. 
Before hanging up, he said, quote, cheaters usually get what's coming for them, end quote. So shortly after, the Rock Floral Company received a call asking for, quote, 13 American Beauty roses sent to Roland Owen's stone, oh, funeral, end quote. The voice also added, I'm doing this for my sister. So now all these people are coming back saying that his name is Roland Owen. So it's... But we already established that wasn't him. I know. So after that, the mysterious death of Artemis Ogletree has been left to unfortunately collect dust on the shelves of investigators with no possible leads or clues. To this day, it is unknown what truly happened in room 1046. Was Ogletree held prisoner? Was he actually punished for cheating on his fiance? The case will unfortunately remain unsolved. And to this day, though, that exact hotel is still like up and running. It's beautiful hotel. So if anybody is in the Kansas City, Missouri area, please go to that hotel and try to stay in room 1046. I'll and up- lock the door from the outside. I think they probably changed that now. But um, I will post pictures on our um Instagram at Misery Manor Podcast of the hotel room, like what it looked like, the sketches of what Roland T. Owens looked like. Um, his ear. His ear. Um, again, this is from 1935, so it's a little bit harder to get photos. Yeah. Um, but I will do the best to see what I can find. But yeah, that is the unsolved mysterious murder of room 1046. So when we did the po- uh, the poll on our Instagram on what you guys liked, murder obviously won. Second place was unsolved cases. So boom shakalaka, boom shakalaka. You got both in this one. A murder, unsolved mystery. So. What do you think happened? I think. Well, he was. I, I think that this Don guy killed him. I think that maybe he had ties to the mafia. Something happened. He was scared and he was killed. What if he just saw something he wasn't supposed to see? Right. But then again, like. I don't, you know what? That makes sense. If it happened in today's world, though, that the case would have been solved like this, which is so unfortunate. But if it was the mafia, they probably would have stayed out of it. Right. But the fact that you said he was like a part of the mafia, that makes sense because he could like have gotten the ear thing. I'm just fixated on the ears. Okay. I love cauliflower, but maybe well, it's not he was... an edible ear. <laughs> what if it's some rain stress? <laughs> but um, maybe he was like beat. Yeah, the maybe that's where the scar came from. Oh, well, no, because the mom said that the scar he has had since he was. Oh, that's true. So, yeah. But then his mom would have been in the mafia, too, probably. And maybe he fled to California because he was promised a better life if he were to work for the mafia. So then maybe he was like a snitch or something and he had to move away and Mm -hmm. then he came back and they were like, oh, no. And maybe the reason why he had no belongings is because it was planned. Like, he knew that this was going to happen in there, and he wanted it to happen. I don't know. It's, I mean, unfortunately... Or he we'll, just knew it was his fate, maybe? We'll never know, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, that is the mysterious murder in Hotel Room 1046. Good night mm. and goodbye. Rate, Re- review, subscribe. Rate, review, subscribe. Time to go to bed. Fa la 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 Lulu, lulu. Bye, bitches. You just stop trying to end it. Bye.